Leaders are readers. After interviewing over 300 experts on my podcast, I've compiled the top 30 books written by Mindset Advantage guests. You can download the list and listen to the episodes where I interview the authors at djhillier.com slash 30 books. You can also head over to my Instagram bio to download the free ebook right now. Enjoy. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Mindset Advantage podcast, a show dedicated to insightful conversations in a world full of sound bites. Hosted by fitness coach, performance optimization coach, and national speaker, DJ Hilliard. These podcasts are designed to help you attack the gap from where you are now to where you want to be. The episodes take a deep dive into leadership, mindset, and fitness. Follow the show on Instagram at Mindset Advantage Podcast and subscribe to his newsletter at djhillier.com. So let's get to it. Hey, everybody. Welcome back and Happy New Year. This is DJ Hillier, and you are listening to episode 318 of the Mindset Advantage Podcast. And boy, do I have a show for you today. Today, I get to interview Alden Mills. Alden is a former U.S. Navy SEAL, entrepreneur, and motivational speaker. After leaving the military, Mills pursued a career in business and focused on founding several successful companies, including The Perfect Fitness, where he developed The Perfect Push-Up, which has sold over $100 million. Alden is also an author of Unstoppable Teams, The Four Essential Actions of High Performance Leadership. And I got to say, just real quick, I've been doing this for five years. I've interviewed over 300 people, and I've had the opportunity and the privilege to talk to some amazing guests. I got to say, Alden is the best storyteller that I think I've ever heard. The way he can tell stories, uh, just between you guys here, I was on the edge of my seat, and I felt like a kid at a campfire just listening in and being uh, consumed in the moment, and I think you guys will too. A couple of things we talked about was first, what drew Alden in to become a Navy SEAL? What was the attraction right away? Then we talked about the high washout rate in the SEALs, why it's so hard to become a Navy SEAL. Then Alden talked about the difference between being the whiner and the whisperer. Then after that, we talked about what separates the best SEALs from the rest. After that, we talked about some mindset tools and tips on how to turn up your voice and turn down the outside voices. And then we close down by another magnificent story talking about why you need to jump head first. If you enjoyed this episode, please be sure to leave a rating review and share it on your social medias. Also, don't forget, we are now on YouTube. So head over to YouTube and give us a like, subscribe, follow all that fun stuff. You can type in DJ Hillier or the Mindset Advantage podcast. And it'll take you right there and you can watch the podcast at the conveniency of your own home on your couch. All right, without further ado, let's get to this fun and entertaining conversation with the best storyteller I've ever heard, Alden Mills. Let's go. Mindset Advantage podcast is brought to you by Element. Element is a tasty electrolyte drink mix with everything you need and nothing you don't. That means lots of salt with no sugar. Element is formulated to help anyone with their electrolyte needs and is perfectly suited for folks following a keto, low carb, or paleo diet. Element contains a science-backed electrolyte ratio of 1,000 milligrams of sodium, 200 milligrams of potassium, and 60 milligrams of magnesium, with none of the junk. No sugar, no coloring, no artificial ingredients, no gluten, no fillers, no BS. Healthy hydration isn't just about drinking water. It's about water plus electrolytes. And it makes sense. You lose both water and sodium when you sweat. So both need to be replaced to prevent things like muscle cramps, headaches, and energy dips. Rob Wolf, founder of Element, is also a biochemist, New York Times bestseller, and previous guest on this podcast, and is someone I trust dearly. Element is currently being used by the highest performers all over the world, including athletes in the NFL, NBA, NHL, Special Forces, and the Olympics. There are several flavors to choose from. My favorite is the citrus salt, which is how I start every single day. And as listeners of the Mindset Advantage podcast, you can receive a free sample pack by using the link www.drinkelement.com slash mindset advantage. Again, that's www.drinkelement.com slash mindset advantage. 
Go get yours now. Alden Mills, welcome to the Mindset Advantage podcast. It's a joy and a pleasure to have you here today, man. DJ, I am so excited to be here. I love what you're doing. Keep doing it. The world needs more DJ's mindset out here. Awesome, man. Words of affirmations is my love language, and you just hit it right out the gate. Let's get started, man. I'm so curious by uh, some of your background, and uh, I've yet to really dive deep into some of the Navy SEAL topics, and we have a lot of different topics today, but I first wanted to just get to know you a little bit and set the table for the listeners that don't know you. Uh, Alden, what was it about the SEALs that drew you in initially? What was it about it that you're like, that's what I want to do? Well, to give everybody a little context, I was at the Naval Academy. And so being at the Naval Academy, you have to serve your country for five years. And the way I got to the Naval Academy was through rowing. Uh, you know, I was a kid who had scored against his own team in four different sports. Lacrosse, basketball, soccer, hockey. I was that big, slow, uncoordinated kid. And in high school, I had found the sport of rowing. And, you know, growing up on the shores of Cape Cod in Massachusetts, being on, in, or under the water was, you know, a true love for me. And when I found that sport of rowing, I was so able to dedicate myself to it that I got recruited to the Naval Academy. When I got to the Naval Academy, I ended up becoming the captain of the heavyweight rowing program there. And while I was there, I run into a Navy SEAL, and he was a, a Mustang officer. Okay, and a Mustang officer means he started enlisted, worked his way up the ranks, and then became an officer, right? And not only that, this guy was the founder, one of the founders, I call him plank owners, of SEAL Team 6. Guy had medals up over his shoulder, practically, right? Unregulated mustache, you know, in... He'd walk around with like a scowl on his face. And he comes up to me in the fall of my senior year at the Naval Academy. And he says, hey, Mills, you uh, thinking of trying out for SEAL team? I was like, oh, yeah, I'm, I'm thinking about it. You know, like, what do the SEALs do? He sits for a minute, kind of chews on his tongue. And then he goes, you ever been bullied before? And I thought about it for a second, and I immediately went back to first grade when my mom kept my hair so long, the kids called me Shirley Temple. That was the old, you know, that was a while back. And I was like, yeah, as a matter of fact, there was this time, and I start going in, and it goes, whoa, whoa, whoa. I didn't say I wanted to hear about it. But see, that's what SEALs do. We go around the world, we knock back bullies. If you're interested, why don't you come try out? And I share that little vignette because up until that point, SEAL Team seemed like a pretty logical place to go because eight people in a boat, but paddling forward, doing a lot of things on, in the water. But then when he linked that purpose of, you know, he emotionally got me attached to being bullied and the idea that I hated bullies, that was the, the piece that connected me to SEAL Team and said, you know what? I'm going to, I'm going to commit to going after that. So I'm not super familiar admittedly with all the, what it takes to be a SEAL. I'm here to learn. I'm here to be curious. That's the byline of the show here. But I, one thing I have learned over the years of doing interviews and just, you know, listening to other folks is that there's a big, uh, I don't know if turnover is the right word, or it's, it's just, it's not easy to become a SEAL. W walk me through why so many people think they want to, and then it ends up just being a couple. Walk me through the process and why so many people, why is there such a high washout? Yeah, so the washout or dropout rate, you know, it's roughly about 80% that start, don't make it. And, you know, I think the best way that I can capture that if you don't mind if I tell them a story. Please do. Is when you first show up to SEAL training, everybody has already taken the exact same fitness test three times. Okay, and the fitness test is pretty simple. It's more simple than your CrossFit competitions. They are push-ups, pull-ups, sit-ups, a swim, 500-yard swim, and a run. Now, it's condensed, so it's a little bit like, a, a little mini triathlon or maybe something like 
precursor to a CrossFit. But if you train for it, and there's a whole industry of getting yourself trained for this, you can pass it. So by the time you showed up to walk through the gates of sealed of the sealed training compound, you pass that test three times. And then when they put you into training, they actually don't have you start SEAL training. They put you in this pre-phase training cell for seven weeks. And at the end of the seven weeks, they make you take the test for a fourth time. Exactly the same test, except this time around, you have been training with Navy SEALs for the last seven weeks. You know you're stronger. And right before we get that training, the lead instructor comes out. Now, I don't have much of a stage on this podcast because we just got this little view, but he walks out with a limp. And he walks with a limp because his left butt cheek had been blown off by a rocket propeller grenade in Vietnam. And he talks like this, slow, steady, southern accent. And he says, candidates of the class 181, you all interested in know the secret of making it through Navy SEAL training? And, you know, there's 122 of us lined up in neat little military rows, and we're standing at attention. We're nodding our head. And he goes, well, come on, break ranks. Don't make me raise my voice. And we were like kids to a campfire to his feet, right? And we're all kind of huddled around waiting to hear this secret. And he goes, well, that secret it ain't complicated. It's hard, but it ain't complicated. You see, you just have to decide what you're going to focus on. Are you going to focus on the pain of training? Or are you going to focus on the pleasure that training will provide you? And we're like, what is he talking about, right? And he goes, you see, I know for a fact 80% of you are going to focus on the pain. You know why? Because you all been focusing on being a SEAL on a sunny day. And you see, that's a rub. You see, your country, she don't need SEALs on sunny days. She needs them on scary days when it's cold, dark, wet, and that crack over your head. Well, that ain't thunder. That's somebody want you dead. How bad do you want to be a SEAL on that day? Hmm? Now, we really hadn't been spoken to like that before. And everyone kind of took a step back and a hard swallow. And, like, and he goes, you know what my job is? It's to create a conversation. A conversation in here that's going to drive you to make a decision on what you're going to focus on. So you do yourself a favor. You think real hard about why you're here and what you're going to focus on. Because you pass this next little PT test, well, you're coming to my side of the compound come Monday morning, 0500. Oh, while you do that, well, enjoy this sunny San Diego day. Now, bye now. And, yeah, that was Instructor Half Bud. He loved to tell us that he could do more with his half butt than we could with our full butts, right? But I, I share that story because at the end of the day, in that end of that little PT test, half the class failed it. We went from 122 to 64. They had already passed the test three times before. And so when you ask about the attrition rate of SEAL training, the attrition rate, most of it, now some of it is they're medically, and I've seen it, I've seen warriors, their bodies just can't handle it, right? There's, there's a percentage of that, a small percentage, and their body just, for whatever reason, lungs, heart, back, joints, can't deal with it, they have to be medically dropped. But we still figure out ways to keep them associated with some mechanism around the SEAL team supports. But then a large majority of them, they drop out because they've been focused on the wrong thing. And they got focused on the idea of what it would be like, 
but not focused on the purpose behind why SEALs exist and what they're going to be called to do. And that's a really big difference. And I, you know, I use that story a lot, good old instructor Halfbutt, because you may never decide to go through SEAL training, but we all have that conversation, right? We are all dealing with that conversation. And DJ, I've watched what you've been doing for the last five years. You are helping people lead that conversation, that conversation that can go in so many different ways between those two voices. And I call them, you know, the whiner and the winner. And the winner whispers, but the whiner is constantly, and it's so much louder. Why do you think you could do that? Who told you you can do You can't do that. You're not good enough, right? Showering you with reasons to stay in the comfort zone of mediocrity. And, you know, it's why I'm on your show with you is because I want you and hopefully together us inspire your audience to understand that's your greatest leadership opportunity is to push you outside your comfort zone into the unknown where your potential lives. You're a heck of a storyteller, Alden. I, I want to dive a little deeper into the difference between the winner and the whiner. And you said the winner whispers. One of the things that I teach on my first session with kids is the, uh, uh, the strength or the, the benefit of staying curious a little bit longer. And I think that the best athletes in the world, I kind of polarize it between the victim mindset and the curious mindset and the curious competitor is the one that's they're constantly asking questions. Why not me? Or instead of getting, it. instead of getting furious, they get curious. So coach isn't playing me instead of getting furious about it. Hey, what, what can I do different about this situation? What are some of the questions I can ask? I think there's a parallel a little bit here between what I teach in curiosity and what you teach with the whisperer. Talking a little bit more about what does it look like to be the whisperer versus the whiner? I, I love that. What did you just say? What was it between what and curious? So curious or furious and usually with furious is the victim furious. mentality. Furious. Yeah. I love it. I love it. That That's fantastic. Yes. So let, let's let's pull that back one more level and let's look at the operating mechanism between furious and curious. And the way you did it is you put curious up here and you put furious down here, right? So think of it as a line that goes right across. And that line of demarcation is between the two basic emotions that drive everything we do. And they are above the line, love, and below the line, fear. Now, when I'm talking about love for everybody out there, it's that passion for what you want to do. Love can go in lots of different directions, but the love we're talking about is that I am so open and committed. That's the love we're after. You know, in the, in the world of uh, Eastern philosophy, we would call that agape love. That's the love that powers us to go through moments when we have great amounts of fear. When we go into the fear mode below the line, you're exactly correct. You said they want to turn into a victim. In that area, there's actually a, uh, a psychological loop called the drama loop. And that drama loop is the villain, victim, and hero. And Lots of people will kind of play in that loop. You don't want to play in that loop. You want to go up above there and stay in that area where you're coaching yourself and getting curious constantly like, wow, hey, that was great. I, you know, I didn't make my PR that time, but I learned something. And I bet if I tweaked my stride a little bit more this way and I leaned a little further in the beginning and I'm constantly looking for a little bit of an improvement, that same mindset is exactly what will power you well beyond any sport, athletic field, into any other element of your life. And so, anyhow, I first wanted to make sure that, you know, this love and fear component is something we all deal with. And when we talk about the winner, and, you know, in my first book, I called it, or the second book, I called it the whisperer, but really that's the winner that whispers to you. And I, I go into a lot of detail in my third book, which is Unstoppable Mindset, coming out later 
this year. And I want people to understand there's a warrior inside each of us. And we need the warrior. And I don't want you to think of the warriors like you have to go out and slay somebody. It's an internal battle that we're constantly dealing with between a survival mechanism that lives in fear, which is called negativity bias. And I put the name to it as the whiner. Now, to me, my whiner sounds like Alden when he's about eight years old. High-pitched voice. You know how hard that's going to be? Why do you think you could? You have asthma. You shouldn't even be here. You and you scored against your own teams in four different sports. You're terrible athletically, right? Constantly putting you down and putting you in a box so you won't go out and try something new. And that's a survival mechanism. We put a priority on negativity. It's nothing that you should be ashamed of. It's a survival mechanism that's been with us over millions of years. Today, neuroscientists will say that on average, you need three positive comments internally to offset one negative. Now, that's just to offset. If you want to be in the plus column, you need somewhere between four and five. And I will often make the example to launching a product on Amazon. Now, I've launched a lot of different products on Amazon. And if you launch a product and the very first review you get is a one star, do you know how many five stars you need to be above a 4.0 again? Mm. You know how many it is, mm. DJ? No idea. It's five. Mm. Five gets you to a 4.2. And I want people to use that. And, you know, I like using metaphors to help people really understand a concept. In this case, you're launching a new idea. You're launching a new narrative in your head. And the first new narrative you decide to attach to, you're terrible at this. That's a one star. You need five five stars of, yo, DJ, you got this, man. We can do this. We did this before. You Look how good you're looking, man. You keep, you're keeping at it, right? Boom, 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 boom. You're rapid firing yourself. That's a very important training technique that we all need to use to make sure we keep that whiner in his box. Now, the winner whispers, and the winner whispers because it comes from a different place in our body. We got three different intelligence centers. Okay, we got our thought process up here, which is the large majority of all of them. Uh, and there's you know about 80 plus billion neurons. We have a much smaller set, but same neurons in our heart. And then we have an even smaller set in our gut. And between our heart and our gut, we've got desires and emotions. And you can feel it. Now, it's a different set of feelings. But you can feel yourself when you're about to quit, about to give up. It doesn't feel right. You're like, oh, man, I know this is hard. I know this sucks. But you can be like, mm, trust your gut. You know, you've heard that before. Follow your heart. Those old sayings are actually talking about listen to the rest of your body because it will give you the fuel to push forward when this computer starts giving you all the logical reasons why you shouldn't keep trying. That's the whispering I'm referring to. And the whisperer is a more gentle voice. And, and when you go through things like Hell Week, you know, Hell Week is this five and a half day period of time where they give you a total of three and a half hours of sleep. For the entire week you you hallucinate i heard the winner loud and clear and i heard the whisk the whiner a lot but the the winner would say things to me like you got this keep it up keep going and i always want people to know what the winner says because sometimes they can forget in the heat of the battle between deciding whether they can or they can't. Because that's the battle. When we boil all these things down to dealing with love and fear, what voice we're going to listen to, 
the key leadership decision that we're deciding is whether we can or we can't do something. I heard a, or I found a cool post that I think is relevant from today. It says, when in a conversation with someone else, talk less, listen more. When in a conversation with yourself, talk more, listen less. And so in my book, we talk a lot about um, talk to yourself, don't listen to yourself. Because when you listen to yourself, you're going to filter in all the complaints and everything that you can't do. But in order to talk to yourself, you have to be deliberate about it and you have to know what you're going to say. So some of my work is planning. What are you going to say when shit hits the fan? Because you're going to hit adversity at some point. It's going to happen. But if you don't have a process to get you through it, you can't trust the process if you don't have one. So I'm curious, Alda, for you, walk me through what were some of the, what were some of the phrases? What were some of the whispers that helped you back in the day? What were some of the things that you leaned on? Great question, DJ. I've been asked that before. And it's so true. So in the very beginning, when you're going out and doing something you've never done before, you're going to fail. you got to know this. You're going to fail. I do not care if you're God's greatest gift to a sport of whatever you think it is. You got to take the talent and work hard at it. Right? I mean, speaking of quotations, I won't get it exactly right, but I'm sure you've heard the quotation, hard work beats talent when talent doesn't work hard. And you have to push yourself out there. And when you get to those places, now I smile. I literally will smile and be like, oh, yes, we're getting over that envelope. Here we go, Millsy. I call myself Millsy, right? I'm like, Millsy, this is it. We're going to learn something new here. We get the opportunity to push ourselves beyond what we originally been doing. Yeah. And I like, I get goosebumps. Like I have goosebumps right now because I just talked to myself like that. And I will look for things every, I mean, I, we had a mantra in, in the SEAL team, which I, I don't encourage people to in, embrace this particular philosophy, but it was a very uh, well-known mantra. And that is, hey, you should be putting yourself in a position where you're, you're dying every week. Now, that is an extreme philosophy, right? But what does that mean? That means uh, going to do a combat dive. Uh, combat jump, uh, you know, doing something very dangerous in training related, but doing it safely. But putting yourself, what the whole idea there was to be pushing your envelope to not letting that mediocre Alden or DJ allow you to be your driving voice. And every year, I look for something physically challenging. You know, now I'm 55. So I'm looking for new mountains to climb, literally and figuratively. And I and it's not like I'm a thrill seeker. And, you know, the mountain that I can climb today is probably not as aggressive as the mountain you can climb, right? A physical one. But constantly looking for something to keep you on the edge. And then a lot of times it could be, oh, I'm going to get on that stage and I'm going to give a presentation that I've never given before. That's a different kind of mountain. There's a thousand people in the audience. All eyes are on you. And you're going to give them something by going beyond what you originally thought was possible. So in April, we have the unstoppable mindset right now. I went through the unstoppable teams. I went through it once and I'm going through it for a second time here. I would, before we get to unstoppable teams, I'd love to just ask, is because there is there one more piece from Unstoppable Mindset that you would share with us before the book comes out? Was there one more lesson, story, or piece that you think is beneficial to my audience, knowing that we're all obsessed with the mindset? Yes, I briefly talked about your first controllable, and that's this voice, right, that goes between the whiner and the whisperer, or or the winner. And those represent thoughts, okay? Thoughts are one component of your mindset. The next component is focus. And the third component are beliefs. And they all interoperate together. They build upon each other. The, the component that 
I'll share now with everybody has to do with focus. And I want everyone to understand that focus is a weapon for you to use. It's yours. It's your own personal weapon. It's your tool. If you don't like the idea of a weapon, then think of it like a tool in your toolbox. And here's how focus works. It's like a funnel. Okay? I literally, in the book, spend chapters of Unstoppable Mindset talking about your focus funnel. And at its simplest, the focus funnel takes your thoughts and focuses the thoughts into an energy to take an action. Now, let me give you an example. And by the way, you are definitely following your rule of getting me to talk a lot more and you to listen. That's what I do. I'll give you an example. We're in Hell Week, and up until Hell Week, we had been surf tortured a lot. Surf torture is this period of time where they walk you out into the surf zone. You sit down in about knee-deep water with waves behind you looking to shore. Your arms are linked up so you're not separated when the waves break over you. And they just keep you there until somebody gets too cold, walks out, walks up to the back of the truck where there's a bell sticking out of a bracket on the trailer hitch. They ring the bell three times and they're out. And in the beginning, surf torture worked really well. We started with 64. By the time we got to Hell Week, we were down to 34. And now we've got one officer, that's me, and 33 enlisted. And when it came time for our first round of surf torture, up until that point, we'd always done it in the daytime. And when we did it in the daytime, the surf torture stopped working after a while because you could look up at the sun in between each wave that would break, right? And, and you could feel the sun on your cheeks. And, and then we would sing our class song. She's a grand old flag. She's a high-flying flag and forever in peace. May she wave. And we would say every time up until Hell Week, when we're going to get thrown in the surf zone, hey, Sing and sun. And when you would sing and look at the sun, you weren't cold. I mean, your focus had to be on what you were going to be saying. And then you'd look at the sun and be like, oh, there's warmth up there, right? And then we have this character, Instructor Boston, South Boston guy. He's like, class 181, it's time for me to get my first quitter. Now it's the middle of the night. Here's what's going to happen. You're going to walk out there in that surf zone. You're going to bow face, link arms, take seats, and you're going to stay out there until one of you walks up, and he walks up onto the beach, puts an X above the high water mark, steps on this X, and says the magic words. You know what they are. I quit. We walk out, take seats, and then we start singing our song. She's a grand old flag. And he's pacing back and forth and he's firing off pop players. And it becomes this test, right, between the two of us. The problem was we got no more sun. All we got is a song because it's the middle of the night and he put these big searchlights on us from these rescue vehicles. And there was one other problem. He's got an audience behind us because the Navy makes these big sand berms so the public can't see what's going on. And they would bring back old SEALs to watch the first night of Hell Week, which is called Breakout. And they were not helpful. They would say things like, it was snowing in San Diego when I went through. Right? And they're chirping the whole time. And we're locked arms. And we're singing. And it's, and it's a winter Hell Week. And after a while, he's frustrated. And he turns down the beach and he goes, hey, Doc, get that ambulance. Drive it, park it right in. And by the way, the structure's on a megaphone that's attached to over his shoulder. Doc drives this big ambulance, and he comes out, and he's got his collar up, right? And he's not a Navy SEAL. It's raining outside, and his Gore-Tex is up. Doc kind of starts to walk over. Right before he walks over, Instructor Boston goes, Hey, Doc, open up the back of that ambulance. Doc opens up the back of the ambulance. And we stopped singing. Because when you open up the back of the ambulance, this huge plume of heat comes out. 
because they had that thing heated up like a Swedish sweat lodge. They even had a little candle in there, flickering light. And you're like, oh, oh, it looks so warm in there, right? And we skip a verse. And we're like, she's a... And that's all he needed to hear. Oh, you getting cold out there? Doc, come here. Let's teach the class about hypothermia. Doc puts it over here. He puts his megaphone right in his mouth. And he's like, well, hypothermia is a four-degree drop in your body. That's great, Doc. How long you got to be in that water before they're hypothermic? Puts it back in there, right? Doc's got a chart. Water's 58.4 degrees. Uh, that'd be about 19 and a half minutes, instructed Boston. I'm looking at my chronometer here. They've been in the water for over 25 minutes, Doc. Tell them the symptoms of hypothermia. Sticks the megaphone back in, right? Well, what do you think happens? First symptom. Well, first symptom is you start shaking uncontrollably. We start shaking. And we stop singing. Now we're shaking like a dog passing peach pits. And then he says, oh, well, second symptom is you could uh, kind of forget our names. What's my name? Back up and down the line. Do you know my name? You remember my name? Now he's got us. Now we're getting really cold. And then instructor Boston looks at Doc and goes, hey, Doc, what happens if they stay in the water longer? Oh, uh, Doc doesn't need his clipboard. At that point, he goes, you could die? Come on. You really want to die for this? You know what I got in that ambulance? Hot cocoa. Eddie Officer Smith, not his real name, breaks ranks, walks up, and he quits. And you can see it. You know, shoulders roll forward and and he's on the megaphone. We can hear it. And right after he quits, Instructor Boston pats him on the back. Goes, hey, don't worry about it. This ain't for everybody. Take him to X Division. Two SEALs come in, and they hold him, make sure he gets safely out to X Division. And as he's walking through this cut in the sand burn, Boston walks into the water, and he says, and he's on the megaphone. And Penny Officer Smith can hear him. Class 181, listen to me real clearly. Did I say that I had hot cocoa for quittus? They were like, whoa, that's cold. You think you get something for quitting? You think there's hot cocoa on the battlefield for you? No, you see, there's only one weapon that I want you to learn, and you don't know it yet. But it's how to use this. How to use this to focus. Now, what I did say is you can get out of this water after you get that first quitter, and you're going to get out of this water just long enough for this dog to check you out. And then you're going back in. Because oh. I want more quitters. Because you got to learn how to use your focus. Welcome to Hell Week, Class 181. <laughs> now, look, that, the story actually goes on for a lot longer. That's like, that's, I gave you the abbreviated version on that. But here's the funny part. The entire week, we were all technically hypothermic. Right? Technical hypothermia is this four-degree drop in your body core temperature. I was regularly 92, 93 degrees. We had one kid get down to 89. Now, that's that's the danger zone, right? He got pulled out and put in the rewarming facility, the hot tub. That sucks. But the reason I share that story and to share the details of that story is that you may never sit in cold water for long periods of time. But the way you perform... Is exactly the way you had to perform sitting in that cold water. You had to create that focus funnel that was so incredibly strong 
that it literally willed yourself to get warm, to not think about the cold, but to think about whatever it was that you needed to do at that moment. In that moment, it was singing. And you must understand, there's very few things that we can control. But those things that we can control will take you as far as your imagination can take you. And that's really the heart of the Unstoppable Mindset book, is helping you lead yourself to deciding that you can do something. And the way you do that is through your thoughts, your focus, and your beliefs, and getting them to interoperate together. There's so much wisdom in there. I, 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 what I pull out is you guys were, you guys were fine. You were, you were, you were struggling. You were trying to get through this event, but you were fine. And it wasn't until the other officers came in to try to amplify things up. And then we started to crumble under pressure. So there was a pressure component that made that guy ended up, ended up quitting. So talk to me a little bit about, I think one of the big lessons there too, Alden is, can you dial down the voices? Can you dial down the outside voices and can you turn up your voice? I think we did a good job talking about whispering, turning up your voice, but talk to me a little bit more about dialing down the voices that you need to turn down in your life. Cause I think it's kind of a seesaw. There's two components of this. You know, when I'm on stage, I use a lot of instructors, right? You heard two of them, Dr. Halfbutt, Dr. Boston. There's more, Dr. Aloha, Dr. Antichrist, Dr. Popeye, but they're all doing exactly the same thing. They're representing an external voice pushing you to make a decision. A decision on whether you can or you can't. That's the decision at the end. And the reason I shared those external voices is that you have to understand, again, you may never go through SEAL training. I don't want anyone thinking you're like, well, I just can't relate to Alden because you went through SEAL training. That's not the point of that. The point is to say you're all going through your own version of SEAL training. It's just a different environment with different voices. Instead of instructor half butt, it could be Coach Z. And Coach Z is like, you're never going to amount to anything. You're, you know, you don't have big enough muscles or you don't have enough speed or blah, 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 blah. It doesn't give you the time of day. And you have to make that decision of like, do I want to listen to Coach C and become a victim and feel a pity party for myself? Or do you have this idea of like, oh, I can't wait to show him how I am going to crush this team and be the number one. It it may not happen this year, may not happen next year, but by senior year, Coach C is going to be handing me the most valuable award. And he's going to say, I can't believe I'm here. And I can't believe this kid has done what he's done or she has done. And there's no other person that receives this award more. Now, that technique that I just briefly brushed around is an envisioning process. And that's doing what I call a jujitsu or judo, pick your martial art. But most martial arts is about taking the energy, the negative energy, the force of your opponent, and flipping it back on them. Judo is very well known for that. And when you do that judo move on somebody, you're basically taking that negative energy and you're finding the immediate positive side of the negative folks there is always always a positive to a negative it just requires you to be curious enough to find the positive out of the negative so when you ask about those external voices one of the key things you do is exactly your sign right behind you Amp up the curiosity and be like, oh, sweet. How do I take Coach Z and that negative piece and flip it into a positive and make it fuel for me? Well, I gave you the, uh, you know, I, I, I gave you how I would have looked at it. Like, oh, I can't wait 
to hand me this award. That technique is a critical technique for what I call not just a growth mindset, but an unstoppable mindset. Once you're able to practice that, and it takes practice, you can use, you know, DJ, coach your kids, coach your students, your clients with doing that. Like, yes, okay, now you're getting that negative. Now give me the positive. Give me two positives that come from that negative. And when they start to do that, well, then there's nothing that's going to stop them. That becomes an unstoppable mindset. I love it. As of late, I've been asking a similar question to, to folks on my show. I had an MBA coach on, another author on. And one of the questions that I, I like to ask with people like you is, is, in your opinion, Alden, whether it's a teammate or a team, maybe it's two different answers. In the SEALs, a teammate or a team, what separates the best from the rest? What separates the best teammates from the rest? What separates the best teams from the rest? Curious to get your answer on that. Okay, well, let's start with the team level first. The best teams are selfless teams. Very important distinction there. We are born selfish. Watch little kids playing in a sandbox. That's my toy. I want that toy, right? We... I want, I want, I want. But as we grow, we move on this, and I think of it like a a number line from selfish over here to selfless over here. And when we move over to the selfless side of the team equation, people will say like, oh, yeah, we're on a team. we got a great team. I'm like, okay, Uh, tell me about who's the best player. Oh, well, it's this one guy. He scores all the points. And you start to look at it and go, well, okay, you're just feeding that one person. That's not a true high-performing team. The highest-performing teams, they don't care who gets the credit. It's all about the team. Now, it could be like, hey, this particular team, this person is so gifted that that's the play. That's what we have to do. But when you pull back that example, you really have to find the selflessness. And will that person who's Mr. or Mrs. High Point Scorer give up the score to give it to the other person? That difference is the shift from selfish to selfless. That's a very important concept because that same concept at the team level goes to the teammate level. When I talk about in it, uh, team building, and a matter of fact, the Unstoppable Teams book that you've referenced and you're reading. The book is based on three levels of leadership. The three levels of leadership, and I want everyone to think of this like you're looking at a reflection pond. It's beautiful, calm, clear water, and you take a pebble and you drop it into the water. And when you drop it into the water, these three rings radiate out. The pebble is you. It's your action. And that first ring is how you lead yourself. That, in particular, is what I'm talking about, an unstoppable mindset. And we talked about that for a while. The second ring becomes the team and how you lead the team. And the third ring is the culture of the organization that you're a part of. It's the largest one. However, for the culture to be impacted, you have to go all the way back to the individual. How the individual leads his or herself is how they will lead a team. A team is nothing more than a reflection of its leaders. So when you start to look back and say, okay, well, who's the captain of the team? Captains of the team set a tone for that team. Now, depending on what kind of person we're talking about, are we talking on, hey, this is someone who's just coming off the bench to come in and help when they can versus the captain of the team. Those are two different influencers that you need to be aware of. And in the beginning, you're probably going to be the bench warmer before you're going to be the captain of that team. And looking at the captain of the team, it's exactly the same rule as the overall team itself. When you think of a team, I want you to think of a team 
almost like a massive human body. And each piece of the body is a person. And when that team can work with what's called collective consciousness, and they have this collective consciousness that they actually know what the other person is thinking, and that it's a beautiful mimicry of movement because they're moving together, we're at the ultimate in selflessness. When you go to the individual, you have to grade them on are they thinking about themselves first or are they thinking about what's best for the team? I love that. I love that. That's the same answer for team and for individual. I'm going to ask the obvious answer, Alden, or the obvious question here. It, how would you as a facilitator, as a coach, if that's the answer, right? We want to have a selfish environment or a selfless culture. What is that? How do you do that? How do you teach that? If that's the answer, what's the first step? Uh, maybe first for the coaches out there. And then second for the teammates out there that are listening, what's the advice to create a more selfless environment? If that's truly the answer, which I couldn't agree more with. You have to put people in positions to be selfless, create the plays where the person who's used to being the superstar is not going to be the superstar, mm. that they are the ones that have to learn to follow. You know, leadership is a funny thing. Everyone wants to be the leader. Well, not everybody. Some people are like, no, I don't want to be the leader. I just want to do this. But a lot of people are like, no, I'm the leader. I'm the leader. It, it just doesn't happen that way. You have to earn that respect. And the way you earn it in a lot of ways is by first being a follower. Yeah. Followership is a very key leadership role that we all have to learn how to do. And leading doesn't just happen on the field, it happens off the field. And when you look at the selflessness, look at what they're doing also off the field. Yep, I think that's so true, man. And it's it's a power of consistency too, right, Alden? Like, are you consistent? Are you the same person on the field as you are off the field as a player and as a coach? Are you consistent in all aspects of your life? We talk about building trust too. I think that's probably the easiest way that you guys can build trust for listeners out there is to just be the same person in all aspects. Don't be a different person when you're out to dinner with your family than you are at work. Be Try to be the same person. Can you speak to that a little bit? Yeah. I I think, you know, you just uh, jogged my memory on one piece of this. When you do a play and you're asking about, you know, this, this is a very important question you asked about, getting people to be selfless yeah and in the military we do this thing called the debrief debrief is a very big important element it's the after action report after action report or debrief after we do a mission we're still got our cami face paint in we're battered and bruised and they put you in a room and they immediately say okay what happened on this mission mm. what went well what didn't go well why didn't it go well what can we learn from and when you put people in a room, and let's say they just did a play, they just did a game, and you get them to go around and say, okay, what, what went well? And I want you to go around the room, and I want you to call out each person and something well that they did, something good. And then I want you to go around and say, okay, let's talk about what's one thing that they can improve on. This is where you really want to watch how each teammate gives the gratitude and mm. then gives the gift on where someone can get better. If there's somebody there that's like, oh, they all did, it was all their fault. The accountability of consistency that we're after is I made the mistake. It was on me. I'm going to get better. When you're out in the middle of the game, and you can see this in a football game or a basketball game, Right, you see somebody going like that. That's saying that was on me. Bad pass, not you, receiver, not you, uh, point guard. That was me. Okay, don't worry about it. We'll get it again. That's selfless. You know who does that a lot? Patrick Mahomes, Steph Curry. Those two players. That was me, not you. That's taking ownership. You know, accountability is an interesting word. Everyone wants accountability, but they don't really appreciate what it means to have accountability.
True. And have accountability means I got to own it. I got to own my mistake. And when maybe you did the right thing and somebody else didn't do the right thing, the other key component is the proverbial putting your arm over their shoulder going, hey, man, we got it next time. Here's what I saw. Let's try and uh, let's let's widen our stance a little bit more. Get your hands up a little faster because I'm going to, you know, whatever your your sport is. But not then putting the person down. Come on, dude. You suck. Stop screwing that up. That's not helpful for a team. Mm-hmm. So that's good. Alden, with my teams I work with, after every game, we do what's called a well, better, how. And I got it from Kobe Bryant originally, but it talks about it's exactly what you just said. What did I do well? What could I have done? What do I need to do better? And how am I going to do it? And it's something that uh, they journal on after every single game. But you've given me some great insight here. I think one step further, Alden, is what did she or he do well? What could they? I mean, now you're providing as a facilitator like I am sometimes. It's providing them a conversation. So it's not, I think there's a ton of value in I know there's a lot of value in the internal reflection, but you've given me a whole new light here of maybe there's some reflection that you can have communication between the fives, the starting five. What did she do well? What did he do well? And bring out some of the wins so they can hear from their teammates. So it's not just an internal dialogue that I wrote on this worksheet. That's great stuff, man. I'm excited to use that. Oh, I've implemented that in many of my boys. I get brought in as a guest speaker for my kids' sports teams and it's very powerful when you get kids sitting around and be like, okay, everyone give them around the room and you're going to talk about each teammate and what they did and cool. what you like about that teammate. And it, you can dig deeper into that. I love that. And and not just one play, but it can be tell them what you like. Tell them what inspires you. And when kids start to learn at an early age how to express how they feel about and that's called giving gratitude. Well, guess what happens when you give gratitude? It opens your heart. That's activating the love. And that love will power you and everybody around you in magnificent ways. And sometimes I think you would agree that that moment, that 30 to 45 minutes is 10 times better than hitting the hardwoods or hitting the weights. I mean, that that can be a crucial, monumental breakthrough for a team, athletics or business or even a family. Some of those conversations are major breakthroughs. So coaches out there listening, if you haven't had one of these types of conversations before, and maybe you guys are struggling or you're not having, you're not cohesive or something just isn't right, that might be what you're missing. It's not extra sprints after practice, right? It's not anything like that. It's It's having these, I wouldn't even say difficult conversations, but maybe perhaps vulnerable conversations. Hundred percent. And when kids start to be able to learn how to give gratitude to each other, they're going to play harder for each other. That's right. Cool. Alden, do you have time for one more story? Yeah. I'd like to close down with um, on the, at the end of your book, you talk about uh, at, at the end of Unstoppable Teams. There's a few books here. At the end of this one, you talk about diving head first. And as I'm reading it, I'm like, this would be a great way to also end the podcast. Could you tell that story as we uh, say goodbye here in the last couple of moments? Yeah, that's my most terrifying moment in seal training and you have to understand seal training never stops goes on all the time and that particular moment i was already a seal i'd already been a platoon commander twice and now i got picked up for advanced military freefall now i'd done a lot of jumps up until that point but they were all static line and static line means someone else a professional has packed your parachute in this case, when you go to advanced military freefall, now you're going to jump as high as 23,000 feet, oxygen, middle of the night. You're going to do high altitude, high opening, which is called hey-ho or hey-low, which is high altitude, low opening. But the most scary thing for me, it was not the heights. It wasn't the nighttime jumps and all these different things. Is now I had to pack my own parachute. And you see, I know something about myself. I suck at folding things. (laughs) I know that because at the Naval Academy, I could never make my bed just right. I was always failing room inspection. My roommate should be like, Mills, just get out of the room. You owe us a meal for this. And I I couldn't make my socks smile the right way. I'd always fold towels in different folds. It just, I just always looking at different ways to fold stuff. And now I got to do these 20 folds 
just right because it's my parachute. No one else's. And I got to fold this thing. And for two weeks, fold, 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 fold. And then it's the night before our first jump. And you're like, all right, last time you packed this parachute, you're jumping in the morning, packing well. I'm like, oh my God, I fell in the whole thing. And then you put it in your little locker in that air loft and they take you out to the dorm and they're like, all right, sleep well. We'll wake you up at 345. There's no sleeping, at least not for me, for that first night. Because all you can think about is, did I pack my parachute? Good enough? Because I'm jumping at 14,000 feet. And, you know, it's a pretty bad case scenario if that parachute doesn't open up. So they uh, wake you up, didn't sleep a wink, bring you down to the airloft, which is a big hangar. C-130's fired up outside. Pull out the jumpsuit, and they're bright yellow jumpsuits. And we're like, what's up with the bright yellow there, Master Sergeant? Oh, that's so if you go splat, we can see you. I'm like, oh, my God. So we put on these flying banana jumpsuits, put our put my uh, parachute on, hop in the C-130, like, hey, Mills, you are sitting right here. You're senior man and bird. You're jumping first with me. I'm like, hmm, great. Yeah, Got to jump, buddy. And this guy's a master sergeant from the Air Force. And they match you up on size. We're both Clydesdales. So it's over 220. And get up past 12,000 feet. They open the ramp. And that when that ramp opens up, it's like, 140 knots of just power wind blowing through. It's like the loudest leaf blower or hair dryer you can imagine. You pick your tool. And, and then it's so loud that he's got to use hand signals. And he walks over and he goes, Sir, stand up. Stand up. You can look at the front of the aircraft. Everybody's looking down like, oh, Lieutenant Mills got to jump first. Back up to the ramp. Back up to the ramp. Put your heels over the ramp. Now, when you put your heels over the ramp, now you're on the balls of your feet, right? My arms are out in front of me. And you're balancing. Look down. Do a really quick look. Right underneath my right armpit. Pretty high, isn't it? <laughs> right after he says that, bing, green jump light comes on. And we're at 14,000 feet. Will you jump? Good. I got one last thing to tell you. Right, here we are. I'm like, just about to jump. And he's going to tell me where it is. I'm like, why? I'm yelling at him with my hands up like this. You have the rest of your life to figure out how to open your parachute, sir. Good luck. Oof. Pushes me off the back of the ramp, and I go, boom, 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 flat. I get flat and stable, right? And I'm looking at my altimeter, and he comes down. We're falling 120 miles an hour, and he's laughing. He goes, did you figure out how long the rest of your life is? I'm like, huh, What? It's about 60 seconds. You want to pass? You got to pull. I'll watch. Oof. It opens. Thank God. But, and all the others did. Some were a little better than others. But I, I end that story with that book because... We are all packing our own parachutes. The jump may not be the one that 14,000 feet off of a C-130 ramp, but trust me, every day, you're jumping. And you're jumping off of a ramp into the unknown. Now, packing your parachute is very important. No doubt about it. Got to do it. Got to learn how to do it and keep getting better at doing it. But there's another piece that's really important. And they don't tell you about it in advanced military free fall until you start doing it. And that is how you leave the ramp. You see, there's three ways you can leave the ramp. 
The first way is you can get pushed, shoved, dragged. And when that happens, after three times, they'll say, you know what? I don't think this is a place for you. And they'll get you to the recruiter. Let's find you a new job. Number two, and I've seen this happen, big, burly special operator, tattoos all over the place, walks up to the ramp, and then squats down to try and get six inches closer to earth like a little kid on the end of a diving board trying to minimize impact, right? And, and puts one foot over the ramp, like to tiptoe, like six inches at 14,000 feet matter, right? Now, the way they want you to go, head first. They want you to go head first. And the reason they want you to go head first is that when you have those junior jumpers in the back of the line, right, and they're seeing everyone else going head first, there's only one way you can be all in. When you're head first, you're fully committed. Your focus funnel is laser pointed. And when you're all in, sure, you'll make mistakes. But everyone around you knows you're all in, and they're going all in for you too. When you're all in, that's how we get better. Whatever it is, whether it's staying curious or having an unstoppable mindset, it's about committing and giving all you got. Because when you do that, you'll find you'll have even more to give. Alden, man, what a treat it was today. Ladies and gentlemen, Alden Mills, thanks for taking the time. For my listeners that want to support you, what are the best ways to do it? Is it to buy the book? Is there any other avenues that I should point them? Have them go to my website, alden-mills.com. And they can also find me on Instagram. Um, I'm gener- uh, every week, got new articles coming out. I'd love to hear from them. And Unstoppable Mindset comes out in a few months. Awesome. I'm a big proponent. I love this Unstoppable Teams. It's a great book, you guys. I highly encourage you to check it out and then be on the lookout for Unstoppable Mindset. I know I'll be first in line to get that one in April as well. Alden, Thank thanks you for your time. Today. This is a lot of fun today. Honor. Really, Yeah, really good to get to know you. Thank you for your time. Appreciate it. You bet.